chapter. Uh, exciting chapter. You notice we didn't skip 13 like some do on floors of buildings and various things. They just don't put the number there, but it's kind of hard to really skip a 13th floor if you have 14 floors in the building. So um, we don't see it as uh, uh, bad juju or anything like that. So this is chapter 13. It's kind of interesting in chapter 13 because this is where uh, a lot of people get mired down in the muck trying to get through the church age. It's where a lot of fights have uh, sprung up and uh, arose. Some of them are, are just unbelievable over various things. I'll bring them in some as we, as we go through this. But um, we have been looking at, according to the chart, and I hope you're real familiar with it by now, that we start on with, with just believing based on evidence and faith that God exists. He is indeed the one. And that he inspired his word. He inspired it accurately. We can read it and learn from the original languages. And we can be confident in what it says. And then when we study what it says, we find out that we can know that we have eternal life. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ. It's not a, it's not a maybe. It's not a wishful thinking. It is, an, it is indeed a, a wonderful confidence to have that you know where you're going to spend eternity. Now, knowing the truth is so very important. We live in a world that doesn't even want to claim truth exists except what they define as truth. But when we do have the truth, then what we look at and what we can have is a changed life. Our life can change for the better. We can no longer let the sin nature run roughshod over us. Instead, we can choose to follow the Spirit of God, and life will change. It's not a proof of your salvation, if you will, but it indeed should be a part of what our salvation is. And we'll know this changed life because it is a life of service to other people. It is not a self-serving type of thing, although it will serve you to be a, of service service to other people is very serving to yourself along the way. It's very rewarding, very enjoyable. Uh, it's, 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 it can be a lot of fun. It can also be a lot of heartache, but it can be a lot of fun. And see, this is the transformation Paul writes about in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can determine what the will of God is. You will know the will of God because it's good, it's except it's, it's well-pleasing, it's, it's inherently good and pleasing to God. So you'll be able to know what is pleasing and acceptable to Him and being transformed. Now you'll know that transformation whenever we, we find ourselves loving God when we don't understand what's going on. And honestly, this is a point of time in history when it's kind of hard to figure out everything that's going on. But what we do know is that he's seen the end from the beginning. Nothing escapes his notice. And that one day he's going to bring about his justice and judgment upon the earth. And we know that uh, all of his enemies are going to be defeated one of these days. Why? Because he has said so. And we love him even when we don't understand the intricate details of his plan. And we learn to love others. We, we start developing, developing an empathy for them. And um, I think a lot of the judgmental attitudes that our sin nature has oftentimes gets replaced with the compassion because Jesus said, looked on the crowds with compassion. 
I know people try to turn Jesus into nothing but a robot and a computer that has no emotions or feelings or anything else. And that's totally mischaracterizes the king of kings. He looked on the crowds with compassion. They didn't have any food. They were like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, you see that throughout the Gospels. And you find yourself loving other people that are not really worthy of it and wanting to see the best for them. Now, with this transformation comes hope, and with this hope, a great peace. Now, what part of the transformation that we're looking at in chapter 13, because we've looked at personal practical applications in chapter 12, this is about corporate practical applications, and this deals with the church. Now, when you start talking about the church, you end up in, in, in a lot of different arguments. So it's always best when we're going to talk about what the scripture has to say. First go in front of the throne of grace and ask that the real teacher of all of us, the Holy Spirit, will indeed enlighten us and challenge us, help us understand it, and help us to remember it and use it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace, your mercy, your love, all your goodness, all your blessings. Thank you for your test. Thank you for your discipline. Father, thank you that you show us the way if we're willing to look for it. And so, Father, tonight as we open up and study uh, this particular portion of, of systematic theology, we, help, we pray you'll help us to understand it and be able to remember it and use it wisely. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this particular chapter, we're going to see, we're not going to get through the whole chapter tonight, but we're going to take a look at the universal church. We're going to look at the local church. What are the differences between the universal church and the local church? Then we're going to take a look at church leaders, because uh, throughout the course of history, you go back in the 12th, 13th, 14th century A.D., they had such a battle royal over what church leadership should be. How should the church be ran? What should the organizational structure be? They kill people over it. I mean, literally, Christians killing other Christians because they disagreed with them over the way the church should be governed. But what does the scripture have to say? Oftentimes we find the biggest fights arise when it comes over creeds and rather scripture. When they go back to the scripture, things will actually get clarified. We're also going to look at the model church. What, what are the characteristics of a model church? And uh, a lot of people today would say it's all about the overt structure that they have. It's all about the wealth they have. It's all about the mission outreach they have, and they try to make one big deal out of it. Actually, it's a lot of things that go into being a model church. Summarized in faith, hope, and love, as we know, that's what a model church is, and one of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. It's a picture of the church at Thessalonica. But what we've done there for that particular portion of this chapter is extract the commendations that Paul has pointed out to the church at Thessalonica and why they are a model church, why they walk by faith, have the labor of love and the patience of hope, steadfastness of hope. So we're going to look at the model church and then we're going to look at servant leadership. How should leaders lead? Because uh, uh, oftentimes 
people want to adopt an authoritarian style of leadership, and yet we find in Scripture that's, that's flatly uh, condemned. That's not the way it is supposed to be. We're supposed to lead like Christ. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. So we're going to look at Christ. We're going to look at Paul. We're going to take these into account and extract some principles that we need to follow in servant leadership. Now, obviously, it's important in the church because the church is to be a model. Uh, within the church, a church is supposed to function as a model and, and therefore be able to teach Fathers, how to better lead their family, how to better lead their, their, their marriage. And then that should spill over into a nation. The church doesn't need to run the nation. But the nation needs to be run by Christian principles. That's the, that's the distinction we need, we need to make. Our founding fathers made that distinction. And that's why they started off the Constitution and wrote the Constitution in with a, um, a very... Uh, with, with very Christian principles. had an interesting talk with a young lady, a nurse today, and uh, down at OU Med Center, and I had on a, a mask. It said, Land of the Free Because of the Brave, and had on a uh, NRA hat. I mean, you know, <laughs> I like to hide what I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> and she picked up and commented on it, and she was telling me about their pastor up in, uh, in Edmond, and he's teaching uh, principles of, the, they have a special class going, teaching principles of uh, the Constitution, the United States, what it is, how it developed out of uh, uh, understanding of the scriptures and of God. And so I, I find, isn't that interesting? There, there are people that, that uh, other than us, that actually think about such things. Honestly, there's a lot of people. I think Elijah had a complex one time. He thought, I and only I am left, Lord. Didn't he say that? And the Lord said, oh, shut up. It's over 6,000 of you that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So you're not by yourself in this, Elijah. So there are other people that think like, like we think. Now, what are some of these transformations, these corporate practical applications? First, we're going to look at the church. And what is the church? The local church is designed to portray both a physical and a spiritual unity. Local church is where we get together, where we have fellowship, where we teach the Word of God, where we have fellowship with one another, and hopefully we equip the saints, encourage them to go out and tell other people about it. Teaching, fellowship, and evangelism, I think, are three key factors of a local church. But there's a physical unity and also a spiritual unity. We come together like-minded on basic tenets of theology and doctrine. We come together and we think about those things and we want to spread those things. Then there's the universal church. The universal church is not really a physical entity. This is part of where Roman Catholicism went astray for a period of time because they thought it was all about the physical, the overt, that which you could see. But it's really the church is a spiritual unity. Everyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of the firstborn, everyone who is a believer in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost to the rapture is part of the church. That's... that's who we are as believers. So, do you know any wacky believers? Do any wacky believers know you? <laughs> I mean, do they consider you wacky too? I mean, 
if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day. We have a spiritual unity in Christ Jesus, whether we realize it or not. Now, if we realize that, hopefully we can look for a little bit of common ground that we can work with other believers on. Because the unity in the universal church is spiritual, and it encompasses from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. The church is never designated as Israel. Nowhere is it designated as Israel in Scripture. In fact, Paul makes it very, a very careful distinction in Romans 9 through 11 that they're different. They are different. In a sense, the church has been grafted into the vine. We share the blessings. We are supported by the vine. Fruit is produced by the vine. But there are prophecies given specifically to Israel that are not given to the church. And we have to, main, we have to see the differences where, Christian, where Scripture makes a difference. If Scripture makes a distinction, we're supposed to keep the distinctions. And you know what? The church in Israel is kept separated throughout the book of Revelation. The letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and the church disappears until chapter 19. But what goes on from chapter 6 through 18? You have a picture of Israel and the play, the, the things and the events that circle Israel and Jerusalem. That's what you find going on, and you find them referring back inferentially to the Old Testament and things that were promised to happen to Israel, many of which haven't happened yet. So the Lord, to keep his word and prove his omniscience in the ultimate uh, courtroom, to show that he knew what he was talking about, he keeps the church and Israel distinct. Now, Israel is primarily, it's, it's, there is a physical Israel, but there's also a spiritual Israel. And the spiritual Israel is the one who were believers in Jehovah Elohim. These were the ones that were saved by grace like Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So these are those type of believers. But there were a lot of believers that we've, we've seen lately. We saw in the Olivet Discourse, in fact. There are a lot of, of Jews that were not believers. And they could have had all of the blessings. But they never accepted Jehovah Elohim as the Almighty, as their God. And so as a result, they will be removed from Israel. And one day, all Israel will be saved because all the ones that chose against him will be removed from the picture and they'll enter the millennial kingdom.